Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. It's great to have you here. It's good to see all your faces. This is such a treat to be able to share God's Word and to worship with you. Um, this morning, I want to ask this question, and maybe it's kind of obvious to you, but who is Jesus? Who is he? A first century Middle Eastern carpenter son, a great historical religious leader, a teacher, a miracle worker, a, a reformer and prophet. Who is he? Who is Jesus? That's the question that our passage we're going to be looking at ends with, but we're going to begin with. We're continuing our series in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, working verse by verse, and we see Jesus is finally at the capital in Israel, Jerusalem. After traveling miles south, he's in the limelight. He's on display. We'll get to meet Jesus in our passage, but what difference does he make for us? What's the big deal about who he is? In our day, what's the significance that Jesus has in Berrien and Laporte County? We're going to read that many people believe in Jesus. A few people hope in Jesus. A few people obey Jesus and some question him. And not too long from our chapter, we're going to see some will seek to destroy him. They'll hand him, deliver him over to the Romans to be killed for his teaching. That's what he did. He taught, and and they don't like what he taught. Who is this man whom they will kill? And what are we to do about it tomorrow, this week, and the rest of our lives? Well, I want to begin, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're starting chapter 21. We're going to read the first 11 verses, and Chuck, um, I'm going to have Chuck Height come up here and read for us. And would you stand with me, if you're able, in honor of God's word? Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him And that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Thank you. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is a light to our path. Show us now, Jesus, who he is in a fresh way and inspire our hearts, motivate us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this for your honor, for your glory, for your name, and, and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So Jesus is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's what time of year? It's Passover week. It's Holy Week, a national holiday celebrating God's saving power to the people of Israel. If you remember the story, he rescued them from 400 years of slavery in the country of Egypt. They were slaves. And the Lord passes over his people and he kills his oppressor's firstborn. The Israelites were to sacrifice, if you remember, a pure, spotless lamb. And they were to take the blood and they were to cover the doorposts. And then they were to eat the lamb and burn the rest and have unleavened bread and have everything ready to escape. And at midnight, God passed over his people and then killed every firstborn that didn't have blood on their doorposts. Now consider how extreme this is. So to illustrate, okay, if you are a firstborn person who could, can stand right now, stand right now. So we have some firstborns. So I'm a firstborn. So if you're in your household and you didn't put blood on your doorpost, you'd be dead by now. You can have a seat. That's, 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 that's shocking. But God had given Pharaoh nine other attempts to try to get him to let his people go, to free them from this slavery, this injustice, so that they could go to the promised land and worship their king. Pharaoh, the ruler, ignored God again and again and again. And, and God sent this sign and he passed over his people and his people were freed. And subsequently, every year after that, God told his people to remember, to memorialize this event with this thing called the Passover. And so they would, some would journey to the city of Jerusalem, the capital in Israel, and remember what God did when he struck down those Egyptians and he freed them from this oppression. The city, uh, I read in one um, commentator, was the size of about 30,000 people. So you kind of get a picture of 30,000 people. But when people were coming to pilgrimage, coming to Jerusalem, it would balloon up to 180,000 people where they would do sacrifices and, and, and they, would, they would sing and worship the Lord. And Jesus is in this parade, this train of people. And Jerusalem uh, is a stir. The Romans were in charge. Emperor Tiberius Caesar was in control and he had a governor over Jerusalem. You might remember Pontius Pilate. Jerusalem is also known as Zion. So sometimes you'll see in the Bible, Zion. Well, that that's means Jerusalem. It's also called in Psalm 48, the city of the great king. Which king are they talking about? Do you remember? David, that's right. It's King David. But it's, it's not just King David because there's another king that will arise. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a prophet that goes, talks to David and says, from you will come, it's Nathan. This prophet Nathan says, from you will come another king one day whose land and reign will never end. And Jesus was that king that God had promised. However, 
he was an unlikely one, right? He grows up in this obscure town in poverty. He's adopted by a carpenter's family and lives his first 30 years with no one taking much notice. And then he performs this great miracle at the wedding of Canaan, turning 150 gallons of water into choice wine after this week-long celebration. And the wines run out and and it's a disgrace or uh, it's a shock or it's disappointment. And and he does this amazing miracle and it kickstarts this ministry that is extraordinary. People are taking note. His teaching is unlike any of the teachers, the, the religious leaders of the day. He taught with an authority, an authority of God. So he would say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, he was writing scripture with his words. Royal blood flowed through his veins. He was of the lineage of David and he would perform miraculous uh, things again and again, fulfilling prophecy. He was, he was amazing. He had character and conviction. He had vision and compassion. And he shows his authority in all of these, in all these ways. So he, he heals the sick, right? And some of you maybe have been sick this week or have struggled with health things. He just touches people or they touch him and they're healed. We saw two blind people healed last week in the passage. He's able to raise the dead. He's able to cast out demons. He's able to walk on water. He's able to feed people thousands with just a a, a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. He is amazing. He can control the elements and stop a storm with a word. It's like a Marvel hero come to life. He is incredible and people are taking notes. So the crowds are there in Jerusalem and they're there for this religious ceremony, but they also know Jesus is here and, and, and there's a swarm around him. A buzz is in the air. Our passage this morning has three parts. Uh, someone in our, our Sunday school, so you can come at 10 o'clock and we study the passage uh, Pastor Mike, Pastor myself, uh, Pastor Joe, and sometimes we bring other people come in and we're talking. And I, I see three parts here, but there could be four. I, I, I see that too. So I say verses one through five is the first part. Jesus commands two disciples, hey, could you get two donkeys for me? And it fulfills a prophecy. Verses six through nine, the disciples obey and the crowds recognize what's going on. And then verses 10 through 11, the city takes note and they interact with this crowd. And they're asking, who is this? The main idea of this, I think, the big idea that Matthew's wanting us to take, take away, um, and I got, Pastor Michael and I were talking about this passage. There's four different ways they talk about Jesus. And so I like that. I'm going to put that in the main idea here. Jesus is the king, the son of David, the Lord, the, and the prophet. And that should change everything. Let me say that again. Jesus is the king, the son of David, the Lord and the prophet, and that should change everything. So that's the main idea. Now let's dig into the text and look at what it says. And and let me show you where I get that. So if you have your Bibles, look at verse one. We'll just go to verse one. Verse one says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Okay, we'll stop there. And I have a picture. Did we get this picture up? Okay. I found this online. It was pretty helpful because it, I mean, as simple as it is, it shows some very familiar places as you talk, read your Bible at the end of the, the, you know, the 
accounts of Je- last days of Jesus's life. So Bethany, Bethany is where Lazarus was and he was dead and he rose. And Bethphage is there. I think they, they don't know exactly where Bethphage is. It's on this place called the Mount of Olives. Now a mount, a mountain of olives, this this is a place where olive trees grow. There's olive groves and they they have the Olivet Discourse, which we'll hear Jesus teaching, is in there. There's the Garden of Gethsemane where there's more olive trees. Some some of you have been to this area. And and when they're talking about mountains, they're not talking like Pikes Peak at 10,000 feet or something like a 14,000, you know, it's not a 10 or 14, maybe Pikes Peak's 14,000, but they're not talking about that. That's like 2,000 feet. 2,500, 2,800 feet. So it's not high, but they're able to look down on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's at 3,000 feet. It's, out, it's Mount Moriah, the same place that Abraham, I'm getting excited, so I'm like, I gotta slow down. Abraham, Abraham sacri- was gonna sacrifice his son Isaac and God provided a substitute lamb. That was Mount Moriah, same place. That's where they built the temple. And then you see the Kidron Valley. You might read in your Bibles about a Kidron Valley. Well, you have Mount you have Mount of Olives on one side, Jerusalem on Mount Moriah on this side, and there's the, the little valley between. And you're talking about a distance about two miles. This isn't very far, okay? Jesus is doing something here. He's told people in chapter 9, for example, he heals some, some blind men, and he's like, don't tell anyone. And they do. You know, he, He's kept a really low profile, even though he's been doing all his healing. He's moving around. And now it's like he's coming and out in full display who he is. Um, he's traveling with a purpose. This is a popular route. Look at verse 2 and 3. He wants his two disciples to do something. What, are they, what does he want? Saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So he sends out his two disciples to go get a donkey, and he says, here's what phrase you need to use when you get these donkeys. I read this in one commentator. Uh, he said, the brief formula, the Lord needs them, would serve well as an agreed-upon password, but would not persuade any but a very gullible villager to part with his animals to two strangers if he had not been forewarned. So it's kind of wondering, how does this work? You know, a, a donkey costs two months to two years wage. Just think about a car, you know, a cheap car or, you know, maybe an expensive car. This is not something you just give two random strangers, you know, to, you know, they, they're going to two, to some random house with the donkey. Um, so it looks like He's had this relationship before where he, he's talked about he needs this donkey. Um, the scene is part of God's plan. Regardless of how you look at this, there's a reason for it. What's the reason? Why does he need two donkeys? Well, the answer is actually in the next part of the verse. Um, oh, let's see. I've jumped ahead of myself. Before we get to that, what's interesting, he uses that word Lord. Remember, there's different names. Matthew uses the word Lord 80 times in, in the book. He uses it 80 times. Sometimes it's people referring to Jesus as Lord. Jesus uses it to refer to himself in Matthew um, 12, 8. It says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He uses it to refer to the Father. 
And in chapter 22, we'll get to this. He used the term to refer to both himself and God. He's quoting Psalm 110. He says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. You keep that up there a second. Who's writing this? David, King David writes this. The Lord said to my Lord, so David's Lord, um, someone said, this Lord figure said to his Lord, there's two Lords there. And I think Jesus knows who that is. He's asking the Pharisees, who are, the, who's, who are these Lords? And he knows the answer. What's the answer? It, I think it's the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord God of heaven. Why do I say that? You don't need to go to these places. But we'll have them project up here. I did a quick study on, on Lord. And in Mark chapter 16, verse 19, it says this. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So the Lord is sitting at the right hand of the Lord. The Lord Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Lord God, Mark 16, 19. Stephen in Acts is the first martyr. He's the first guy who's killed for his faith. And as he's dying, Luke records heaven opens up and he sees the Lord standing next to the Lord. He sees the Lord Jesus standing next to the Lord at, the right, at his right hand. The apostle Peter, who is there with Jesus, he says this basic thing that the Lord is sitting at the, the right hand of the God, the Father, in chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Peter. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And in Hebrews, I love Hebrews, it says this in, in chapter 1, verse 3. It says it a couple times in Hebrews, but look at this. Chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews, do we have that one? He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is sitting next to God the Father. This distinction between the Lord God of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ clarifies for us a little bit about who he is. They are one God, two persons, mysteriously, paradoxically united. Who is the Lord? Jesus is accurately referring to himself as the Lord. He is the Lord. The Lord needs two donkeys. And why does he need two donkeys? Is it because he's tired? I need a rest. My feet hurt. After He's traveled hundreds of miles. He's traveled maybe thousands of miles. People aren't riding donkeys in our text. Um, and and in actually in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John biographies, we don't see Jesus ride a donkey up to this point. Um, all he had to do was go a mile or two. It's not because he's exhausted. Um, and maybe he was exhausted, but why? Verse that, And that's where... Verses 4 and 5 give us the answer. Look at verses 4 and 5. What does it say? This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Zion is Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew's quoting a prophecy recorded 500 years before, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, a prophecy of a humble king riding on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. And that's what's happening. 
Matthew was there. If you read the context of the, the prophecy, it's pretty remarkable. It goes on in verses 10 through 13. He, the king, shall speak peace to the nations. His, the king's rule, shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set you, your prisoners, free from the waterless pit. God is going to free the people of Israel. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim, these are tribes of Israel, its arrow. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior sword. So what is he, what is he saying? It gets a little confusing. You know, so Zion's Jerusalem. What is he doing? This is what's happening. The king, Zechariah is pro- pro- predicting in the future, a king is going to bring peace to a land where there is no peace. He's going to rule from sea to sea. He's going to rule from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And he will, at that time, free Israel, the people of God, from a metaphorical prison that they are, or maybe physical as well, they're in bondage. He will restore all that they had lost. And then he will add to them more. And he will use Israel to execute justice on the nations that oppress them. Zechariah is calling to mind a humility and a regality of a future king entering a a capital, the capital of Jerusalem, and ushering in this radical blessing for the people of Israel. It's hope for those who are subjugated. And during this time, you remember, Rome is the colonizer, the oppressor. They're occupying and taxing and dictating who does what, when, where, and how. And these people feel it. You remember how Matthew begins, there's a decree that came out from Caesar that that they're going to do a census. And when they do a census, there's also taxes. Matthew is a tax collector. Not only are they oppressed from this occupying nation, but their own religious leaders are self-serving hypocritical parasites. And Jesus is the true king, the true religious spiritual leader that God had promised bringing positive change for a people who were, who were despairing and hopeless. He's going to bring peace or shalom, justice and righteousness and reign and reign supreme. So do these people, are they getting it? So you're going to start seeing how they respond. Are they getting it? Are they seeing what's happening before their eyes? I think in part they do, but not entirely. And part of the way we see this is in John's account. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have this account, and they they share a little different perspective. In John, no, maybe it's not John. Maybe Maybe it's Luke. It's... It says this, his disciples didn't understand these things. His disciples didn't understand these things. They knew enough to trust him, to follow him, to go get two donkeys. <laughs> you know. But they didn't quite understand what was going on. He's the king. He is the Lord. He's offering relief and a new order and a brighter future. But we have the privilege to look at the end and read back. What happened? We can see the end of the book. 
Brothers and sisters, the reality is we are citizens of this heavenly kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And he is our king. And he is our king by faith. We are subjects, his subjects. Do you believe what the Bible teaches here? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Do you, do you view him that way? So the big idea here is Jesus is the king, the, the son of David, the Lord, the prophet. And that really should change or impact our days. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 6. The disciples, what did they do? They went and did as Jesus had directed them. They went out, they got a donkey, the mom donkey and the baby donkey, and they returned. To do that, they had to hear him. They had to obey him. They had to trust him. Do you trust him? Do you obey him? Do you hear him? Would, would we go and do that? I, I want to say I would. I, wanna, I feel like I'd go get a, if he says, go get a, if he comes in and says, hey, could you get me a car? Just say this to this person. I'm like, okay, I could do that. Here's a different question. Are we following him? Because I don't, I don't see him coming in through a glass doors asking us to go down the street and get a car and say this like, for, the special password or phrase. Um, but are we following him in, in all of our lives? Or have we compartmentalized our faith so it's just this little part over here? Does it look like we're following him when we're, when we're texting somebody or when we're surfing and scrolling or when we're watching something or whether we're talking to a customer or talking to our boss or in our school? Like, are, 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 we, are we doing what we need to be doing or saying what we need to be saying? Are we thinking what we need to be thinking? Are we following him? I'm not perfectly. I don't think any of us are. How, how do we adjust our lives so that it, it, it aligns with how he wants us to, to live? How do we know what, how to live? Well, it's a good question. We, we want to listen to him. How do we listen to him? Well, what we're doing here is actually really helpful. We're going to the Bible and we can watch, how does Jesus operate? How does Jesus want us to, to interact? We can go to the Bible and see principles and promises, principles to help us live and promises to help us keep living for him, to understand him. To understand him, we, we really need to go to his word. And so that's, there's value in being together. He can speak through each other through the Spirit as well. But primarily, his word is what's going to speak to us. And so it's not just a one-hour kind of thing we do, you know. Although I'm really grateful for our hour, and it's really helpful for me, and it's helpful for you, but it's about a whole life of listening and learning to follow. Listening and walking and joining him on this journey of faith. That awareness moves us to action. And it's not just a head thing, right? 
because we can have all the head knowledge, and you've seen it probably before, where people have all the right information, and they're living really hypocritical lives in ways that just don't line up. It's misaligned. James, Jesus' half-brother, wrestles with this because there's a, there's a way of faith could just be all head. And he attacks that. And in chapter um, 2, he says, Some of you say, I, you have faith, and I have works. Um, he, they make this dichotomy, this separation. There's the people who are the faith people, the, the head pe- people, and the people who are action people, the people who are doing stuff. Um, and he's like, show me your faith apart from your works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Our faith is demonstrated by what we do. We live out what we believe with our lives. So let's not compartmentalize ourselves and say, this is my spiritual part and this is my non-spiritual part. This is my spiritual you know, offering. I give God an hour a week. He wants all of us, not the leftovers. He wants our hearts, our thoughts, our actions. He cares about our whole self. Jesus is the king. He is he was and he is the king, the son of David, the Lord, the prophet. And, and that should change everything. That should change everything. Let's get back to the text here and keep seeing what happens. Um, in verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on, their, on the, their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and other cut, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So you have two animals, the mother donkey, baby donkey, donkey, the other accounts read it. It's never been ridden before. And so why do you have the mom there? Um, Mari in Sunday school was saying, you know, this is what we do with horses. It helps the the baby donkey comply. You have, just remember, 180,000 people are coming to town, you know, or 150,000 people are coming to Jerusalem. It's loud. It's noisy. It's crazy. And so this mom will, will calm the donkey a little bit, bring some comfort. What's the laying of coats down? You know, we would never put our coat down in front of a car, right? You know, let alone a horse or donkey. It, this is what they did in their culture. It's kind of like the red carpet. You know, these people are walking along the red carpet. And this is just coats and palm branches honoring Jesus, the son of David, the king, the Lord. And now they're traveling up Jerusalem. Remember, it's 3,000 feet. So they went down the Mount Olives to the Kidron Valley, up the hill to Jerusalem. And as they do this traditionally, they're singing the Song of Ascent. The Psalms are ancient hymnal in our Bibles. And so there's songs and prayers. Psalm 113 to 118 are songs written for worship as you move up to Jerusalem, as you travel up to Jerusalem. And they're singing this. And the interesting thing is they move from worshiping the Lord to praising Jesus. They quote Psalm 118 verses 25 through 26. And they shout this, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, Hosanna is not in Psalm 118. Then maybe that's what you say. I don't see that there. So I looked it up. What does it mean? You know, it's, it's not a name of a, I mean, maybe it's a name, you know, some girl named Hosanna or something like that, you know, around here. But Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew word from Greek 
there's from Hebrew to Greek. So it's transliterated. So it's how it sounds in Hebrew for save us. We pray, save us, save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Save in the highest. The crowd is loud. And you can't miss it. I think of like a sporting event with this rowdy, boisterous, happy, you know, you know, just pumped up, you know, cacophony. It's, it's a remarkable group. And, and then the religious leadership, the Pharisees, they come out and they hear this like noise, this racket. And they tell Jesus, make them be quiet. I mean, it sounds blasphemous to them. And what does Jesus say? Do you remember? You, maybe you kind of remember him saying something. He says, if he did, the stones would cry out. And why would he say that? In, inanimate objects crying out? It's because humans are made for worship. We're all worshipers. We all worship something, but we're made specifically to worship God. And Jesus is the Lord, the Lord Christ. He is deserving our worship and he is deserving our prayers. They're just doing what they're made to do. They're blessing the Lord. And if we silence them, all of creation is going to join in and they're going to worship the Lord. So we've been doing this. We've been worshiping. Dan's been leading us in worship. And so they're worshiping Jesus. They're praising Jesus. They're blessing Jesus. But what else are they doing? They're crying out with this phrase, Hosanna. Last week, you heard about two blind men crying out for help. When was the last time you cried out for help to God? Have you ever had that desperate prayer, God, help me? Please help me in this. I'm struggling. I need your help. Have you asked him to save you? I think many here would say, I know I am a sinner. I, I've sinned and I, I, I sin. I still struggle and I need Jesus to save me from my sin. And, and that's what he did on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 21, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that his betrothed wife is pregnant. Not by him. And he, and he says this, she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why do you call him Jesus? Why? Why is he here? This is why he's here. For he will save his people from his sin. And so are you saved from your sin? Have you cried out, Hosanna, Lord, save me? I think a lot of us have. And praise the Lord for that. Because that's what he does. That's why he came. He saves us from our sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. So that all the sin that I have done and I will do, if I trust in him, is forgiven sin. He pays for it by the, the priceless, precious, pure, spotless blood sacrifice that is given on the cross. And the Lord passes over us. And it's on, on him our sin is laid. You know, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus and feel the weight of your sin, all you have to do to be saved with us is to trust in his work, to say in your heart, I am a sinner and I need that application of blood on my behalf. I need that ransom as we heard about a couple weeks ago. I need that help. I need that saving. Hosanna, save me. 
and you can join us. And that is awesome. And I would love for that to happen. Um, maybe you need his help in other ways. Like I do. I need wisdom. Do you need wisdom? Lord, I need wisdom. Maybe you need to cry out for comfort. Maybe you're bound by anxiety. Lord, I need peace. I need that shalom. Maybe there's something else. He is there with arms open wide, asking us to go to him, to cry out to him for help. Will you cry out for help? The people did. I think of uh, the Beatitudes. He, be, he began this way. And sometimes we're like, man, I don't want to bother him. He's not bothered by it. He's inviting it. I, I, I don't want, I, there's other people who need it more. <laughs> He's got unlimited storehouses of blessing and grace and mercy available. We just need to go to him. Consider the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall see mercy. If you find yourself needy, there is blessing there because we have a God who's generous. We just need to go to him. We're almost finished here as we walk through the text. We got two more verses. Uh, Let's look at verses 10 and 11. So Jesus is marching with this parade of people up to Jerusalem and he enters the city. This is a big moment in the book of Matthew. This is the city that is going to destroy him. In verse 10 and 11, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And then you hear the crowd respond, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus enters Jerusalem. The city is riled up, kind of like Lake Michigan with all its wind. There's a storm brewing. You're seeing one king rising and another kingdom, the kingdom of this world, ready to destroy him. Matthew begins, interestingly, this book. In chapter 2, you see wise men march their way all the way from, I think it's like Iran or Iraq, all the way from this Persian empire over to Jerusalem. And, and they, they've followed these prophecies and the stars, this, these, all these things are aligning up. And they're like, there's a king who's born. And they're asking Herod, King Herod, hey, where's the king that's born? Herod doesn't know anything about it and consults some different people. And he's like, I, I don't know, but when you find him, tell him, I want to worship him. Does Herod want to worship him? No, he wants to destroy him. And so the story goes, uh, they, they get warned of, uh, of his plot to destroy Jesus, and they go back, not through Jerusalem. And Herod finds out that he's been ditched, and he sends soldiers to destroy, to kill all the boys two and under in the, the town of Bethlehem. He fails to destroy Jesus, and he ends up dying. And in chapter two of Matthew, the whole town is stirred up. For some reason, they're frustrated or there's some kind of thing about this Jesus king. And here in chapter 21, the whole town is stirred up, but another person's in power, Pilate. And he will succeed where Herod failed and execute Jesus. And the city will approve of this injustice. Who is Jesus? 
He knows all this. He's predicted this. He is choosing this. This is the path, the plan of all along. He is the King, the son of David, the Lord, the prophet. And this should change everything because he doesn't die a purposeless, meaningless death. The greatest atrocity in the history of humanity was done on purpose to save us. And so I think of Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two says this, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, like you and I, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the reality is we all will bend a knee and acknowledge who Jesus is, whether it's this life or the next life. Even those who deny his existence will have to. Atheists, animists, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, and Muslims will bend their knee that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Messiah, the son of David, the King of Kings, the great prophet. Every government leader and corporate head, every, everyone, everyone will bend the knee. And we don't have to wait until this time in judgment. We can do so. We can do so today. We can cry out to help and mercy and grace and receive it from this generous king. So I had this idea, how do we do this? There's something about our, our bodies that, are, that is connected to our spirit. And so this may not work um, on one way. Here it's bending your knee. And so I thought, as I pray, we could get on our knees. But some of you I know can't. So I, I, so the, I was reading this in the Bible, and I was talking to the other pastors about this. I, I was reading my Bible this week, um, and I came to Exodus chapter 4. And it's interesting, the parallels in Exodus and, Ma- and Matthew, in Exodus chapter four, it says this, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, and maybe you have some afflictions, you need help, you need mercy. What did they do? They bowed their heads. So there's a way to bend your knee or bow your knee or bow your posture and worship. So maybe you can't get on your knee, but you can bend your head or you can bend your heart. We can express this sentiment with our physicality, whether it's with a bended head or bended knee. So let us cry out to God. Let's cry out to God this week. Let us cry out to God today. So I'm going to pray. If you want, you can get on your knees and then the worship team is going to come up here and uh, we'll uh, continue in worship, but... Uh, I'm going to get on my knees, and if you can't, you can bend your head, and you can pray with me. And I know some people can't get on your knee. That's okay. And some people don't want it. That's okay. Dear Lord, I just thank you 
for being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, you are worthy of our praise and adoration and faith and obedience. I pray that you would change us. Lord, there are areas in our lives where uh, we still need work. Uh, Some of us might have some guilt and shame. Lord, I pray you just take that. That the blood of Jesus would cover us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you would comfort us. Lord, you'd help us as we turn to sing, that we we would sing unhindered by the stuff that we carry in with us. And then we'd leave empowered by your spirit, the spirit of Christ that, that is here, that is real, and that you'd make us more and more like your son in our workplace, in our home, in our schools. May they know we're Christians by our love for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.